All right. Hey, friends. Ashton here. Welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Maybe the first time I've done an interview in my back office here at the house. Super stoked to have my brother-in-law, the Justin Rosalino, in the house. Um, Justin and I have had conversations like this for many years now, but we've never hit record. And uh, he's got a book coming out, February 29th. Idiot Sojourning Soul, a post-secular pilgrimage. Um, You will quickly learn when you get into Justin's work that uh, his mind, he's brilliant, he's hilarious, he's He's always 10 steps ahead in his thinking than, than you are, but he brings it to a relevant conversation that is so necessary today for life, relationships, vocation, all of that. And so, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. That was super flattering and per- <laughs> perhaps dishonest. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's fun, man. Now that I have a two and a five-year-old, uh, like my ego loves to consider yeah. myself an intellectual, but right now I'm in this sort of permanent. I mean, it's wonderful, but like I'm always groggy, hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just not sharp. You know, like I, I just words escape me, and yeah. I'm like it's hour three of playing Beyblades or whatever <laughs> with my sons, and I just yeah so. But hey, you'd rather be in wonder anyway yeah. than uh, sharp. Totally. Focus, whatever. I'm grateful for That's it. where we're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, where do we begin? When you introduce yourself and your work in the world, your story that's led you to where you are today has been um, kind of a cool path, an eclectic path. Yeah. Um, from, let's go back, let's go way, way back. Where did it all begin? Okay. So I was born in... Uh, Long Island, New York, uh, there's an old Billy Joel song uh, called Billy the Kid, which is actually about my dad's bar, believe it or not, which was this wow. famous little really old vibey watering hole. in. Uh, still there? Still there, but it's been redone so many times, and it, it looks awesome. It's this huge thing now, but back in the day, it was like a, a minuscule, kind of like a shotgun bar that um no joke they they had a hundred kinds of beer and not like 50 60 years ago i mean before my dad worked there um so that was like not a thing then like that was way yeah there wasn't a hundred there wasn't 50 beers on the on tap no no but they just it was uh run for decades by this like quirky german dude who imported all these beers and they chilled them uh, there was a, a natural spring in the basement. So you just walked in the basement, there was a spring, and then kegs of beer sitting in the spring. Wow. So they didn't pay for for drink. Kept them chilled. Yeah. And so uh, that was like, that's where I grew up, this little kind of dying fisherman town uh, slash. It also had like a uh, really nice area uh, where a lot of like Wall Street tycoons mm. once they hit it big and made it they'd have a second or third home mm. in, in oyster bay mm. and, um but uh yeah and so grew up there till i was 18 in a pretty tight-knit community that was mostly um mostly like 
either Italian, Irish, Jewish, Black, or Puerto Rican. I feel like it was everybody. And um, everyone had a nickname. And everyone had a nickname. And, and it was their name. And it was their name. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, was, what were some of them? I mean, I was reading them last <laughs> night. It was like, I can't even remember. They were hilarious. Yeah. Like, I just didn't know that, like, oh, that guy's first legal Christian name is not actually Car Wash. <laughs> but I didn't know that until I was, like, 10. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, there, there are all these... <laughs> Crazy characters, uh, Misslehead, and uh, and my dad just called him that. There was there's some guy named Stork. I don't know his yeah. real name still to this day, but um, so everybody was like quirky and and uh, there weren't like I guess just sort of normal white people. Yeah, um, nobody named like Parker or something like that. Uh, <laughs> And that was just sort of my world. And then I went to college in the South and experienced huge culture shock, much of which was terrific and enriching, but, you know, Mm -hmm. odd. Mm -hmm. Big shift. So UVA. Yeah. University of Virginia. Um, And I went there because the, uh, someone from my high school four years earlier had gone there Mm -hmm. and, I toured and it was beautiful and um, I had a teacher who loved the school and recommended it, a high school teacher. And so I really didn't want to leave Oyster mm-hmm. Bay, Long Island, mm-hmm. mostly because it was all I knew and um, loved my friends. I think it's maybe it's atypical that my high school friends and I are for the most part in touch regularly mm-hmm. and I talk to people regularly that I went to kindergarten with. Uh, We just had such a tight-knit and in some ways traumatized community. There was tons of um, alcoholism, drug abuse. Um, Like, even though my childhood was uh, in large part uh, in the 80s, it was still like, there was still... (laughs) Like a sort of Studio 54, Mm -hmm. drugs of all kinds are still on the table and uh, are in wide usage. And the kind of Wall Street, like people, parents did cocaine in the 80s. Like normal (laughs) parents. I mean, that is so weird. And at the time, I kind of felt like, this can't be that great. Yeah. Or There's a car wash. <laughs> yeah. We got fifty kegs underwater. And Billy Joel's cruising through. Yes. Yeah. He he was in that. That was kind of one of his uh, stomping grounds, and he went to that bar all the time, the old mm-hmm. homestead at Oyster Bay, and um, so it was just like there's a lot of people from that community mm-hmm. that I'm still in touch with and tight with who have had to seek out spiritual awakening Hmm. because their lives sort of depended on it. Hmm. You know, like there's a lot of folks Mm -hmm. um, who came out of there or who are still there who had to, in some form or fashion, kind of like, I got to figure out some way to Mm -hmm. tap into something Mm -hmm. transcendent and and, uh, health, Mm -hmm. like um, spiritual health. Um, So... Maybe that's unique, and then sometimes, 
you know, sometimes when I look around in the South, and maybe it's not unique. I mean, this, mm-hmm. you know. Different blinders. Yeah. You know. For like sure. You, you were taking a lot in. Yeah. Right? And the same stuff, a lot of which is happening here. Yes. It's just camouflaged a bit better. It is, yes. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so UVA, you meet a guy. I think, is this who you dedicated the book to? Or is that a no, someone else? I dedicated the book to a former student of mine okay. who um, who actually uh, sadly OD'd. Uh, wow. So he um, he passed away and was still young. I, I feel like I can say that I don't know how public they were about the fact that his passing was due to it seems like it was due to mm-hmm. drug use, but he was actually a uh, super bright, thoughtful, and good kid, hmm. and not like a hardcore drug user. It was mm-hmm. really tragic. Mm-hmm. So he was a deeply spiritual guy, uh, I think a religion major, undergrad, he went to a small Christian college, and kind of, you know, was not someone that. I would have anticipated would would have gone down hmm. a road long term of drug use or anything, and uh, and I don't think he would have. It was just a really bad, um, almost a one off that just went horribly awry. But he um, he just like was the first student to take me in when I started teaching. Hmm. Like he he was a tall, pretty loud, charismatic student who was kind of like, I like this Rosalino guy. And so he kind of mirrored each other. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's dedication. Right on. Right on. So, but, but who at UVA, I know you met a guy that marked your life there. Yes. And, and I feel like, I feel like he played and to this day still plays um, a great narrative Light, yes. Beacon, uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, this guy was named Ernest Mead. Yep. Um, Doctor Mead. Doctor Mead. Um, and so he had been. He was from Richmond, Virginia. Truly a genteel Southern gentleman. I mean, just he was one of those old dudes who like wore a bow tie and it just absolutely worked <laughs> and super hospitable super kind amazing listener hmm. um had that kind of gift of uh listening students into into speech and into a kind of awakening I and mean, hmm. he could just sit there have you over for tea and somehow you would end up opening up and learning and he was almost kind of a chaperone in that way Mm. um, towards something higher and um, wasn't preachy at all Um, and so he kind of heard that I was a musician and um, Virginia is an amazing school but didn't have a very strong music performance program actually Mm -hmm. it was like a lot of music history people, mm-hmm. but not players, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that surprised me. I, I didn't, when I got to school, there weren't that many 
good guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I guess he heard that I was a guitar player and was kind of serious about it. Um, and we had some mutual friends. Um, and so I met him and he just literally told me, we're going to be good friends. Just right out of the gate. Yeah, right out of the gate. And I was kind of like, well, that's weird. <laughs> and, and, and I was so uncomfortable for so long with him. Because that, um, that didn't happen with, <laughs> with Car Wash. No. Car Wash, Eddie, and Misslehead, that's not how it worked. And so, yeah, it was just, he was very familiar and uh, very, had a lot of that kind of deep, abiding, gentle strength. Uh as a friend, teacher, mentor. Um, and so I just couldn't help but eventually get comfortable. Hmm. And so, um, and I did. And he just gave me a lot of room to ask questions, including existential spiritual questions. Hmm. I mean, I would just go over to his house and, can I talk to you, like, five hours about whether or not God exists and he he wouldn't necessarily push me one way mm-hmm. or the other and he wasn't super overtly mm-hmm. um, spiritual like he didn't use any Christian lingo mm-hmm. or anything like that mm-hmm. um, and in fact one of the most interesting things I think or that I I suspect you would find this interesting, is that he was tuned in to aspects of the Christian tradition that were not fashionable then and still aren't super fashionable Mm -hmm. in a lot of evangelical circles. And so a lot of evangelical students who loved him and were close to him... um, sort of worried that he wasn't a Christian um, because, and here's the irony, he was absolutely preoccupied by the Trinity. Yeah. And, and I remember asking him once um, in front of a, a kind of eclectic assembly of students, so tell me what you're reading, Mr. Mead, these days about the Trinity and what your thoughts are about the Trinity. Um, and he would, he was a careful reader. He would like camp out in a book for six months. And mind you, I met him when he was in his late 70s. Good. So this is a guy who... Still went, going. Still, still studying. Oh, still studying. Still caught in the mystery. Oh yeah, when and, he was 80. So he was a concert pianist, I think through his 30s. Well, classical concert pianist, and then eventually got a doctorate in music, was the chair of the music department at Virginia. So this is a serious, I mean, he taught their classes in Beethoven. Um, And when he turned 80, he decided uh, to radically change and reinvent his technique. Well. And so he just, yeah, I'm doing this regimen. Sometimes I'd show up at his house. Another 10,000 hours of craft. And and I would hear a metronome, and he'd be kind of doing pretty simple scale work and just 
because he was reinventing. Wow. Like, I always wanted to try and play like a different pianist. Yeah. So I'm doing this thing, and it's going pretty well. You tell. I mean, he did that for several years. Mm. Um, but with a the metaphor tr- for his life. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, um, and with the Trinity, he, um, his answer to that question, when I asked him in that semi-public setting, uh, really for the benefit of others, I just mm-hmm. wanted other people to get to hear. <laughs> and he, was, he just said, the Trinity is everything. If, you, if you're not thinking about this, <laughs> uh, and again, it wasn't preachy. He, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. he almost said it like someone who was humbled by a discovery. Yeah. Um, right. But he he didn't he didn't that. check the bo- the right boxes mm-hmm. for for our evangelical friends because he didn't say what's your thoughts on this? Right. You know. And he did he didn't say he didn't say uh, you're trapped in sin but God has a wonderful plan for your life and if you believe in substitutionary atonement, atonement, then a transaction can occur by which you are now justified and then you can tell other people about it. And all your credit card debt is paid? Yes. And that's basically Christianity. Like, he didn't do any of that. I don't even know if I ever had a conversation about any of those points I just made. Yeah. Which would mean, like, already he's suspect. Yeah. Um, but the way he lived life, and I mean, he would, I'm not kidding about this guy. Like he would take hours a day to prepare his meals. Really? And would always have people over. Wow. And he had birds in his backyard that he would just talk to. So he just kind of lived in the eternal now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was very, he loved Francis of Assisi. He loved. Wow. He loved That's my guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> he had a tree in his front yard. This this gnarly, cool kind of like a uh, Central Texas oak tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this mutual friend of ours, who was another undergrad student uh, uh, named Charles Irons, who's now a pretty noted historian. Um, uh, Charles Irons, a historian of Southern. And Civil War history, but um, Charles would come over and just climb the tree. And Charles is like a, a little Francis of Assisi, um, <laughs> brother, son, sister, man, need yes. to get in the tree. Yes, I mean, and that was Mister Mead's thing. He wow. was he was all about like, how do you not do that and be a person who's aware mm-hmm. of of even the idea of something like the Trinity. Mm -hmm. I think you and I have chatted before about John O'Donoghue's thoughts on the the Trinity in jazz. And he was like, if you're trying to understand God, you you need to go study jazz for about 20 years. And perhaps you may get an inkling as to what's going on there. Yeah, probably. Something like that where you have basically... Uh, some parameters, mm-hmm. some parameters, mm-hmm. but there's a threeness. Yes, operating as one. Yes, 
Which, and there you go. And then you go. <laughs> and you think about it. And yeah, something like that. Uh, and and it's so, I mean, people who harp, who love the, the idea uh, of Trinity mm-hmm. um, tend to love embodiment. Mm-hmm. Yes. They yep. appreciate... Because the Trinity drags you into Christology, right? Because one, you know, the Trinity has the audacity to include the claim that, by the way, one of these persons is also a a human being and did human things and experienced humanity in such a way that nothing human is alien. To the Trinity, and so it's very humane. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think that spoke yeah. to people a little bit about Mister Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it happens to a lot of us in college. For me, it was a I was unaware that this tradition that I was a part of that I actually loved could be a sport. Mm-hmm. I, I was unaware that there was teams within the team. Yeah, or that that there even was a team. Like I, I hit, I can. There's too much dualism in what I'm trying to reference to. But I remember I got to Baylor and I was like, "Huh? What?" And you get the five point Calvinist there, right. and you get the these guys there, and you get the Charismatics there, and everyone's pointing with a finger of they're not as they're wrong. We're more right. They're not so wrong, but we're still more right. Yeah. You get to Virginia though. And you're you don't arrive with with that lens that I did. Right. You arrive with Trinity. Like at most. Yeah. Like yeah. Like you arrive. There's <laughs> was 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 Doctor Mead. Was he your? I don't know. Introduction into spirituality. And he was one of the things that, um, you know, the perfect storm, I guess, that became my little conversion story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of the ways, mm. you know, for sure. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I didn't, it's so funny, um, you comparing that experience to Baylor, because I'm, I'm a big, I, I love what Baylor does. I'm a fan. And I even think for the most part, those little teams and sub teams and subgroups there on aggregate, I, I'd like to think it's a good thing. Sure. Totally. Um, but it's there. You're right. I, yeah. mean, I, I see that in my students and former students and my wife went through that as a Baylor. And it doesn't stop there. Right. By the way, it's still going on in the neighborhood I live in. Yes. <laughs> totally. It's like when you're in the Christian Bible Belt soup. You yeah. know, it's just, it's that ubiquitous and, and it can become kind of tribal. and um, But I, all of that, I didn't know what the heck that was. Yeah. You know, I didn't even know... When I got, it's kind of amazing because Virginia, I was a, I was a very good high school student. I took AP history classes, which would, you would think that would mean I kind of knew mm-hmm. history and culture and things. 
Um, I was raised Catholic, but not very nominally. Mm-hmm. And then I guess everyone's a bit Catholic. Yeah, yeah. ish, which yeah. is like Christmas and Easter, and it kind of means like don't kill anybody, yeah. <laughs> and you you have a shot yeah. at getting through the pearly gates. But and that's not a slam on Catholicism. It's just. Uh, it, the last few popes have acknowledged mm-hmm. American Catholicism is not in the best shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. And so I'm not, um, I don't have an anti-Catholic bent and I, or, or an anti-Catholic yeah. chip on my shoulder. And I didn't as a child. I, yeah. The priests were, that I knew were really kind. and um, But I just didn't, wasn't super plugged in, didn't attend much. Uh, my parents let me stop going after I was like 12 or 13, so I didn't go um, to Mass. And uh, when I got to Virginia, I just didn't know. I didn't know there were two Testaments mm-hmm. in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a Protestant, what like what mm-hmm. did that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, I didn't know there were different types of Protestantism yep. or yep. any of that. Um, so are you getting a historical education in sync with a just an awakening of all things uh, Christian household I mean I know one thing you and I talked about before we hit record was like you didn't go to a camp say the right prayer come home and we're given every man's battle right like <laughs> no, no. And, and like you were given Boober and uh, yeah. Thomas Merton and Henry Nowen. Yes. So my evangelical friends in college were terrific. Hmm. And there was a sense, so even though it's a southern school, it's two hours south of D.C., it's for a rural school, it's oddly metropolitan in yeah. a way and yeah. oddly international. Yeah. Um, so it was Christians there tended to be very ecumenical, very charitable towards other denominations. Um, they were, they were still really evangelical. Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, Mr. Mead, why aren't you saying more things explicitly about the inerrancy of scripture or penal substitutionary atonement? Mm-hmm. You're a little too gray. Yes. But barring that, they were pretty. Um, they're pretty uh, artsy, intellectual, open, very well read, um, and so yeah, I never got the like, I kiss dating goodbye, <laughs> prayer of Jabez, whatever stuff that. WWJD. Like yes. Uh, what's the other? There was this thing, uh, wild at heart. You might have been too oh, yeah. young. John Eldridge. Yeah. yeah. So all of that, like, which I heard about, or, um, and some of that was even after I was in college, but I just didn't, it was, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I just didn't get hyper exposed to that. Nobody insisted on that. I didn't go to a church. Hmm. Um, and uh, these, these kind of waves that together constituted the, perfect storm <clears throat> they were so odd and it was so unplanned um, 
that and organic that I just I didn't feel uh, like it was very oppressive or anyone was shoving anything that felt too narrow down mm-hmm. my throat. So there was the relational thing happening with Mr. Mead where I just basically he embodied or incarnated mm. um, a kind of attentiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, Whatever he had was drawing you in. Yeah. yeah. Attentiveness to to life, to the embodied world, to... Um, inclusive. Inclusive in, a, in the most Trinitarian and Pauline sense. And when I say Pauline, there's this great phrase that the theologian Karl Barth uses sometimes... Uh, where he's, he talks about the gospel in its whole Pauline breadth, meaning hmm. like the same Paul who really had a cosmic mm-hmm. universal vision yep. of the Christ, of Christ. And, and when I say universal, I don't mean a very trivial... Uh, all religions are the same, so who cares? Let's just do what we want, and all dogs go to heaven, and no, nobody has to wrestle with things or change or repent. That's not what I mean. I, I do mean, like, totally encompassing. Like, every... The rewriting group, of history. Cosmic. Yes. All of it. All of it, non-tribal, neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. Yeah. Uh, everything that is all that things has been created by and for Christ yeah. that thing yeah right um, so I felt like Mr. Mead was tapped into that um, he was and if you're tapped into that I would say you're going to be pro-culture what do you mean by that? Like, culture is just embodied life that is public and communal. Culture meaning, you know, whether it's Baylor. Fo- it's here. Yeah. Baylor football or your wife likes to garden and grow herbs and you like to cook and music and, and um, you know, your daughter likes to paint and color. And I mean, that's just culture. That's mm-hmm. just being engaged mm-hmm. um, and enjoying the creation yep. um, and existence, which has been um, taken up, yep. in a sense, into the divine life. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, that was all over Mr. Me. And I would also say, like, tragically because of various political, historical forces in the last 30 years, the term pro-life has, has become so um, narrow and divisive, yeah. and, and ironically, I would say kind of trivialized, um, that um, it's almost a, it's outlived its, its mm-hmm. usage, but if you really think about pro-life in in the most robust sense like that 
that Jesus thought it was a good idea for Lazarus to be alive. Mm-hmm. Right? Like mm-hmm. that's the that's the Trinitarian answer mm-hmm. to the very fair question which we kind of whisper to ourselves in the dark once in a while. Would it have been better if we weren't here? Mm-hmm. You know? And mm-hmm. and pretty much every great text, I don't know about every, but many great texts from Faust to um, Shakespeare, etc., have um, touched on that question. Would it have been better? Hmm. There's an argument to be made that it would have probably been better mm-hmm. if we didn't get this whole thing rolling because mm-hmm. there would be no suffering. And I can get behind some of that thought mm-hmm. or at least the force of that question. Mm-hmm. And, um but there seems to be an answer, mm-hmm. which yeah. is no. This is really better. Yeah, and that was Mister Me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Let's not, let's not start it bad. Let's not start with the problem. Right. Let's let's start with the jazz is good. The yeah. jazz is up to goodness. If jazz is goodness, then the whole shebang's up to goodness. Yes. Yeah. Do you, have you ever, I don't know if we talked about this, speaking of jazz, but the first 20 pages or so of Tolkien's prequel to Lord of the Rings, which I I wouldn't necessarily advise anybody (laughs) read. It's called The Silmarillion. Have you heard of that book? Okay, it's, I mean, I loved it, but I'm like a Tolkien nerd, so this is not a wholehearted uh, recommendation Mm -hmm. of that book, but... It's a thousand pages. <laughs> and it feels like it. Yeah. So, you know, be be cautious if you if you decide to read that. But the first twenty pages, um, there's the creation story of Middle okay. Earth, of the whole, you know, hobbits and elves and all this crazy stuff. But um, Tolkien imagined the or reimagined the creation story as God, um, singing the world Hmm. into being. And he actually does it by creating these angelic beings. These, Hmm. uh, you know, so if you're, if you're Plato or a Platonist, they're, you know, platonic forms Mm -hmm. of goodness and beauty and Mm -hmm. truth and these things. Mm -hmm. Um, Or archangels or whatever. And this choir of these angelic beings, heavenly beings, sing and as they sing uh, things start to the world starts to be created to come Mm -hmm. into existence Mm -hmm. and the the most powerful of those angelic beings is uh melkor who is kind of like tolkien's lucifer okay and he wants to to redirect the song he wants to put his stamp on the song. And he's a little bit impatient. He's a little bit... He has amazing ideas, but he's a little... Control. Control. Yeah. Um, And so twice he starts doing that and messing up the song. And with some spite, too. Mm -hmm. With some, I'm going to maybe mess this up. And so twice, Melkor, the one angelic being, basically ruins the song. And so God 
has to restart the song. And um, the final time, the third time that God starts the song, um, he, de he declares um, something to the effect of, let it be known that whatever you try to ruin with discord, I will weave into my song. And it, the result will be more beautiful. Wow. And so that's what happens. He does it. I'll take the noise, then I'll make it into music. Yeah. And so Discord, right? So Melkor, again, thinking of jazz. I mean, you can, jazz takes time to yep. get used to sometimes. Yep. So there's, you know, Discord out the wazoo, right? But it just gets woven in masterfully into hmm. this beautiful thing that's good and worth it. Wow. Still, yep. even though there's... Yeah, there's sadness and darkness in the world now, but um, it's worth it. And yeah, that's anyway. good. Yeah, that's good. That's a big sidebar. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's beautiful. So um, we're going to get to the book at some point. <laughs> um, the uh, and, and so really, you, um, I guess you leave UVA at some point. Yeah. You graduate at some point and kind of move into the realm of music. Yes. Pack it up, head to Atlanta. Yes. And for how many years are you in vans, traveling? Well, so for my first, I did that, um, I moved to Atlanta, I think that was spring of 97 or 98. I always forget. Good. Um, and after college, and I was, um, I lived in my friend's parents' basement. <laughs> they had like a little pull-out bed thing. Um, <clears throat> I had no money. My first year, I made $14,000. I remember because a buddy of mine did my taxes. Uh, and he was like, hey, uh, how are you doing this? Like, how are you... <laughs> <laughs> How are you eating? Um, so I was a lot skinnier then, but so I just uh, started playing like open mic nights, and I worked at a booking agency in Atlanta, which was a blast. We um, Atlanta had this burgeoning scene at the mm -hmm. time. It had a big festival called Music Midtown that has since uh, gone the way of the dodo, so it's it's dead. And so, but when I was there, Atlanta still had. Um, Music Midtown, uh, Freak Nick. Have you ever heard of Freak Nick? Uh -uh. So Freak Nick was the coolest thing, and I can't believe the powers that be succeeded in making it go away. But somehow, my, my, my take on it is that like the biggest historically black colleges in America got together and kind of publicized, like, hey, this weekend, once a year, we're all going to Atlanta and we're going to like take it over and just hang out. And so the interstates would be like gridlocked at 11 o'clock at night with people sitting on the hoods of their cars just hanging out. And Atlanta is a great city. It's a, it sounds like a derogatory term. It's not, but it's a chocolate city. Yeah. I mean, meaning that it prides itself in having like a very vibrant black culture and and throughout every aspect of culture and civic life, mm -hmm. from community leaders, political leaders, etc., 
and not totally coincidentally, right? There's a there's a huge hip hop scene that is vibrant, creative. You know, that was like the seabed of uh, of uh, Goody Mob and Outkast yeah. and all this stuff yeah. and um, cool stuff. And that was happening in the late '90s, early 2000s. There was that acoustic scene. The mayor was there. Yes, uh, and I'll never forget because I fancied myself as like, okay, I'm going to be like the guy with the acoustic guitar who, singer-songwriter guy who can actually kind of play. Can shred. And I'm (laughs) going to weave that into my songwriting and that's going to be my identity. I'll be the kind of energetic, uh, brown-haired, good guitar player. Yeah. And then sure enough, a better <laughs> guitar player, brown hair, energetic guy. So, yeah, that was in 99, I think, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who's like, dude, I just got back from Eddie's Attic, which was like the acoustic club. Yeah. That club launched the Indigo Girls, uh, wow. Angie Aparo, John Mayer, a, a ton of people. Anyway, um and he's like, I saw this prodigy kid, and Mayer was like 22. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew, oh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> this is over. Uh, but, but there was a while there. There was like a five, probably for five years, give or take a year, my full-time thing was like my singer-songwriter folk career. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be a folky. I wanted to do like message music that... Um, yeah, I wanted to try and put the lyrics and the meaning first. Yep. Um, and so I toured and played in those kind of acoustic venues up and down the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And for a while there, it was with some success. Mm-hmm. So I had like my home clubs mm-hmm. that were like, I knew I could draw and maybe even sell them out. And we were still selling CDs back yep. then. Yep. So you could crush. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, so if I had a gig and I made 300 bucks at the door and sold 15 CDs for $15 a piece, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was awesome. So <laughs> I did that and, and probably was complacent. Yeah. Like, hey, this is, I'm happy with this. Um, and... Uh, did pretty much Atlanta up to Boston and back hmm. probably two or three times a year. Um, did some sideman guitar stuff, so you know some hired gun, freelance guitar stuff, some co-writing. Um, I did some jingles. I wrote some. You still do. Yeah, <laughs> I get you. Um, and uh, yeah, so did that for five years, and um, you know, kind of saw the writing on the wall that my crowd was getting older. Hmm. I was getting older and less interested in trying to appeal to mm-hmm. college age. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I remember doing a tour and like, man, I feel like every room I just played. They were about 15 or 20% less people. Huh. And I think that's going to keep happening. And I don't know that I want to like reboot. Yeah. Or I have yeah. that next thing. Yeah. Um, so I started doing more. I started just kind of following where 
doors were opening up. Hmm. And that's when I got into playing more lead guitar stuff for like uh, guys like Dave Barnes, yep. Matt Wirtz. I played some for an incredible, I don't know how you categorize her, bluegrass folk singer-songwriter, songstress, Caroline Herring. She's just phenomenal. Uh, and she's still out there doing it. Um, and um, yeah, and I did that all told. My music career was, my full-time music career was 10 years. Well, right on. Then what happened? You meet a girl, you go back to school. Yeah, good. You know, Mr. Mead. Okay. Mr. Mead comes back. Is what into happened. The mix. So he <laughs> told me early on, and I suspected this, but he confirmed it. Um, and he told me this early when I was like 21. He was like, and he, he was so supportive of me musically. Mm-hmm. Always like, Play. He always wanted to hear me play. Hmm. Bring your guitar. What are you working on? What are you writing on? Tell me about your technique. Tell me, how, what are you learning? Um, nevertheless, he was convinced, you're not going to be a lifer. You're not going to be doing this when you're 15. Huh. Because you're going to be bored. Mm-hmm. And he was right. I mean, I, as strange and counterintuitive as that sounds... It does get old. Yeah. yeah. Like the e- you know, the ego feeding stuff is spectacular. Yeah. Like if you just wanna you it's not even metaphorical, you're getting actual applause. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they so, are clapping for you. Right. And so it's that stuff, like all that kind of baseline, uh, what I sometimes call like the my fifth grade self. Mm-hmm. What my fifth grade self wants and likes yeah. is is there in music. Yeah. People think it's intriguing and cool, but sometimes the life of the mind can suffer. The it can get really routine and um, twenty two hours of down, two hours of up. Yeah, that can drive you crazy. Yeah, you know, think about those dudes on tour buses on big tours. Like, excuse me, um, I've got a couple buddies of mine still doing that on big tours now you know and they're making good money um but it's literally i mean you're you're playing an hour and a half show mm-hmm. and then you're in a really nice tour bus mm-hmm. but you play video games till three in the morning and you sleep till noon <laughs> you eat on the road and whatever yeah. surf your phone and yeah. play the gig that night and um I had a, one of many kind of watershed moments of um, or moments of realization when I was playing a gig and it was like a pretty big Christian gig mm-hmm. and I couldn't for the life of me I, I I couldn't remember the songs I had to write out charts and like I'm a guy that came up playing like yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can not Eddie Van Halen and and like I love three chords and a and, and a, a little E minor into the bridge is not a that's not a thing for you. No, I couldn't remember, and I would get anxious. And my wife will tell you she's like, no, like he can't play church gigs because yeah. he'll he gets stressed, and I get stressed because I know I'm not gonna remember. Yeah. 
on yeah. stage. And yeah. I, and so I asked a friend of mine who's a killer drummer. He he played the first Cheryl Crow um, tour, like what, mm-hmm. back in the day when she was blowing up mm-hmm. like her first record, whenever that was. Um, and he's been a drummer ever since. But um, I asked him, like, what is happening? Like, why can't I do this? And he said, oh, I know. I know what your problem is. And I said, well, what is it? He said, you don't care. Period. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. The, and he, I was ding, just, ding, ding, ding. That's oh, it. Yeah, you're I, right. <laughs> I don't care. And so, and that's what Mr. Mead was getting at. Like, you're not going to care, dude. Huh. Yeah. You're going to want to be, you know, for better or worse, mm-hmm. you're just interested next. in this. Something next. Yes. And kind of esoteric thought. Yeah. And, um... And so, yeah, that's just the reality. And so that, I always knew that was coming. Yeah. And then I had a couple friends who encouraged me to consider doing something like seminary to either teach or do pastoral ministry, something like that, which um, I do love the idea. And I think evangelicals are really good at this. This is one of the many things that I'm, grateful to evangelicals for is they're, they're at, at its best evangelicalism encourages people of faith to see themselves as in some way pastors mm-hmm. like whatever walk of life you're in mm-hmm. and if you're in real estate that means that might mean if you're showing houses to a couple that's overworked and stressed out, three kids, and you end up showing them 30 homes, and it's it's about killed them, you, you write them a nice note. Yeah. Or, you know, give them a bottle of wine when they finally yeah. buy their house. Or, yeah. Self-emptying, in a way. Yeah, something yeah. that is an embodied expression at that moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. So, I I like the term pastoral in that sense, mm-hmm. and, and I've always been attracted to that, but mm-hmm. I didn't see myself as, like, being a... So, this is when Vanderbilt happened? Yes. So, I went to... You had a chance to go overseas. That was after. That oh, was after? Like, yes. Okay. So, let's start at Vanderbilt. So, I went there for seminary, which, basically, because I just didn't want to pay. And so here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing with seminary, divinity school, like religious education. The old rich schools, which mm-hmm. tend to be like those old East Coast, mm-hmm. Harvard Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, and some in the South, like Duke and Vanderbilt, you know, they're old. They have lots of money, big endowments, so they can give scholarships. Um, newer schools, like that, tend to be more more evangelical. Um, they're younger and they don't have as much money and they're very, they tend to be very denominationally tied. Gotcha. So you could, you know, my sister went to Gordon Conwell Seminary, which is fantastic. It's outside of Austin. It's a, I would say, evangelical, non-denominational evangelical seminary. Wonderful. Um, serious thinkers. Mm-hmm. 
but you know you're gonna pay so mm-hmm. she left she got out of there with a degree in whatever it's called missiology okay and eighty thousand dollars in debt yeah so I was just kind of like I'm not doing that yeah so I only applied to rich schools <laughs> <laughs> that have scholarships yeah and you uh, got in got in and got to go to Vanderbilt for free well um so which was I loved it it was great um I was not probably as prepared as I thought I was um for how um how open and liberal Vanderbilt was and is and that is not necessarily a bad thing it just is what it is meaning it's it's one of those divinity schools where it's not a given that every student there or every uh, professor, instructor there is a person of faith. Interesting. There are people who teach there who simply because they, you know, they love the New Testament. I mean, A.J. Levine, who's the uh, New Testament prophet Vanderbilt, who does not call herself a person of faith. She's pretty open about that. She's very friendly, very charitable towards people of faith, and in particular, evangelicals. Um, but, I mean, she's a ultra-progressive, Jewish, uh, very uh, pro-LGBTQ, or LGBT? What did I say? L- L-B-G- LGBTQ. <laughs> I would say LBG. Uh, but it's not, uh, it depends on who you guys. Um, so, uh, but she would, you know, not describe herself as a person of faith, but she loves the New Testament. Yeah. Like she just thinks it's the most fascinating. Yeah. And she says, uh, it's the greatest question. Hmm. What better question or questions are there hmm. to spend your life on than the questions of, of faith, religion, and you know, in particular mm-hmm. for her, mm-hmm. the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so that's different. Yeah, yeah. So you pieced it together one way at UVA. Mm-hmm. Then you went and lived some life. Then you kind of re-pieced it together again at yes. Vanderbilt in a new way. And it was another like, uh, <clears throat> yes. what's happening here? Um, and really, that's kind of where this book, I think, starts to get its tire spinning I think for you of like going what does all this mean yeah (laughs) what what is happening here what is this about Um, Mm -hmm. you start the book uh, and I hope I'm not fast forwarding from Vanderbilt to this but you start teaching Mm -hmm. at a school in Nashville in Brentwood um, and they asked you to give the audio speech yes the uh uh, the graduation address. Yes. Um, which they called it a fancy word. Baccalaureate. The baccalaureate, right. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of like your first pause or time out to go, what am I about to tell 18-year-old kids? Yeah. Where they're headed or... or hold my hand on that because yeah, that's where yeah. the book begins. Yeah, so the book begins with a surprise realization that 
Now, that speech was like, that was probably six years ago, maybe, and so um, that I gave that speech at that school, and at that time, it was a surprise that, that so many people... Struck a chord with them. Yeah, and felt the same kind of angst that I was feeling, which is basically that I don't know if we're really Christians, right. or, or if, if the thing we're holding up as Christianity is actually Christian. Yeah. Um, could, is, could we be in, you know, Rural often says, we're in baby Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And so I think something like that, like I'm not saying that the, therefore we're all worthless pieces of crap who are wrong about literally everything. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I, I'm just, um, there are enough reasons to take a beat and try and, mm-hmm. and really take inventory, take mm-hmm. hard inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what that, so in that speech, I basically told the graduating seniors, like, look, you are going into a world that is, you know, pretty post-Christian, pretty increasingly secular, and evangelical apologists and alarmists are on to something when they say that. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're not making all that up. Mm-hmm. It is an increasingly um, <clears throat> secular world, meaning there's more and more people, at least in the English-speaking modern West, that would identify as no longer religious, post-religious, whatever. The nuns. The nuns, The yeah. nuns. D- nuns and duns. And, um, and so that's true. Mm-hmm. And that's reason for reflection and preparation, right? Yeah. For someone who's 18 yeah. and like, hey, if you haven't really been out of Nashville and are going to college, maybe in the Pacific Northwest, you might want to be prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might want to think more about what you actually do believe, why you believe that, if it's worth believing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was that part, but then also the self-critique, the, the like, we, we have problems. Mm-hmm. Not everything that the nuns and duns and secularists and new atheists and angsty liturgists mm-hmm. or what have you not everything they say is is wrong mm-hmm. i mean they they are they have some fresh eyes in some cases and real insight yeah. some of those critiques are important some are true yeah. and accurate yeah and um you know one example i remember a conversation with that former student of mine who uh who I dedicated the book to, who passed away. And he and a friend of his were talking about, uh, this is when they were in college, and they were reflecting upon their high school experience and thinking back upon something that a guest speaker said at one of our chapels. So this was, I taught at a Christian school. Great school, I love the school, and I'm a huge fan. Um, and But we did, you know, mandatory chapels, mm-hmm. and... Pretty regularly, and that means there's a statistical probability that things will go wrong <laughs> when you have something every week uh, that you have to line up speakers for and whatever. And so one speaker, one um, uh, I, I think he was a youth pastor, was saying something about how 
Christopher Columbus was it was and is an example of of one of the many historical figures who had a deep and abiding faith. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> my students knew from our history classes that's not really mm-hmm. true. Or it it's at least a problem mm-hmm. because he also literally enslaved people. Right. At minimum, allowed for enslavement, rape, sexual abuse, extortion, um, you know, horrible, horrible things. So he also, and we know that from the history, the historical records, um, from some of his own admissions and his letters. And, but, you know, in some of his letters, he talks about being a person of faith as well. And, mm-hmm. and he even, in one letter, talks about um, how he thinks it's the best, it's uh, strategically wise to try and win over new cultures that right. are being colonized yeah. through through love. Hmm. So, um, at, you know, at best, he's, he's a very conflicted soul right. and a hypocrite. Yeah. So my students are asked to swallow that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, you're not, just shut up mm-hmm. and just listen to the speaker mm-hmm. and don't raise your hand and say, actually, in history class, we learned blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they, that's a problem mm-hmm. because what we're saying a number of things. We're saying, thou shalt not think, mm-hmm. thou shalt not investigate, um, we're saying there's a type of person for whom I guess the gospel is not good news and namely for inquisitive educated people mm-hmm. it's not good news because yeah. we're going to lie to you we're going to say stuff about Columbus yeah. we're going to say stuff about creationism versus evolution yeah. that is not true yeah. and you're going to find that if you're kind of smart and educated um, and do some reading in your 20s and 30s, you're going to figure out that's not true. So these people who are in these kind of pastoral positions um, vested by the church uh, and or other authorities um, are not trustworthy. I've been manipulated. I've been had. I've been duped. Um... And they know that. And so when I gave this speech and kind of talked about some of those things, too, I had parents and grandparents. Uh, I mean, I thought I was going to get skewered for that. But I had parents and grandparents. Like, that was great. That was so refreshing. That's good for the kids. That's, um, And that just, to me, was so surprising. I thought, I should write about this. Yeah. And uh that's why I wrote it. And so we got, how many pages later? 300 and something pages <laughs> later. Yes. And like, I'm pretty sure there's already like 44. Last night I was on page 10 and I was at the 44th like reference, I think. Yes. <laughs> the reason I did. Which is, which is beautiful. <laughs> I, I hope it's beautiful uh, and not uh, <clears throat> obnoxious. But the reason I did that is because I do... You know, say what you will of of Donald Trump, but uh, 
he's he's on to something when he says we're in an era uh, where fake news but, is proliferating yeah, yeah. at the speed of light. And yeah, you wanted to be able to say this is where this was said. This is who said this, and when they said it. Yes, and pop culture, and even pop culture writing. Yeah, and a lot of spectacular books are. Um, I feel like there can be a danger. Yeah. Uh, Some of them are a little karaoke. Yeah. And said before. Yes. Yeah. Just a little bit of tweaking. Yes, and and not even and maybe not doing their homework. Right. And yeah. yeah. So I wanted to at least say to a type of reader. That's right. Who's going to say an investigator? Yes. A question asker. Yeah. And so I point. It's funny. This was a, an issue. With my publisher because I really wanted to have those end notes mm-hmm. and I wanted them to be end notes meaning at the end of the book not footnotes at the bottom of each page because basically I wanted my mom to be able to read it yep. and my mom is plenty smart yeah but she's not gonna read every footnote yeah and I wanted some of, some of my old students who are pissed off enough and curious enough to do the investigative work mm-hmm. that they will they will look at the end notes and well, sure I'll go read this yeah. little excerpt of John Calvin and yeah, see I'll go if, see what's there yeah so I loved in kind of this intro you're kind of just reframing the whole book of like I I just want to ask a question of like if this thing is good news then, like, what's the news, and how is it good? And you wrote here, um, the revelation of this heavenly kingdom is supposed to be good news. More specifically, it's supposed to be news from God for us, but to be news, it must be something that we didn't already know. Yes. It can't be something obvious, something that was already lying around, and to be good news it must be something as welcome as it is surprising, like a strange gift given in the nick of time and against all odds. It must be something miraculous. Yes. So, um, I, I, I think what you're inviting the reader to do is get to that place where the pain of not asking great questions actually exceeds the pleasure of of not asking them or like the pain of asking them exceeds the pleasure the, when, when you have that pain and pleasure happening yeah. I just sometimes think I won't ask that I'm right. okay it's just better it's better let me just go on Sunday from 11 to noon mm-hmm. maybe I'll listen to K-Love when I pick the kids up and, and I'm good mm-hmm. but I think you're actually going no I want to get to the cosmic to the historic to the all inclusive what is enfleshed love on earth up to? Yes. Um, and how is it revelatory? And how is it good? It's supposed to Why be- isn't it welcomed? Right. Like, if it's good news, why? where's the argument coming from? Why isn't it welcomed by so many? And how, yeah, why is it not received as good news? So, you know, the... the uh, a trite analogy might be something like this. Um, the, when I have 
a spectacular dessert. So the chocolate silk pie from Lula Jane's here in Waco, which is is really for me astonishing. <laughs> so on occasion, I'll go have it for lunch. <laughs> I'll just I'm not eating lunch. I'm gonna have going. Yeah, and so um, it's the type of thing where I say to people, "Hey, forgive me for imposing," and I know. I hope I'm not being obnoxious. You have to try this. Yeah, yeah. Because basically, I just have this inkling that you'll like this. Right. It's really that simple, right? Yeah. I think it's like someone like Rob Bell mm-hmm. said um, that uh, hearing the gospel for the first time is supposed to be like hearing an amazing song mm-hmm. for the first time when mm-hmm. you want to tell people about it. Mm-hmm. It's, I think that's kind of true. There's mm-hmm. something about that that's true. That you, It should be good news. And, yeah. and you want to tell someone and suspect, oh, they'll love this. Yeah. You're going to love this. Yeah. Um, and, but that's not the case at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it's like, no. Yeah, of course you're not going to think this is good news. Yeah, yeah. You're, because when I, if I say... The name Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might get away with saying Jesus, and it and it could be received, depending as, on the room. Yeah, as as at least sort of banal and uh, like that sort of post nineteen sixties likable hippie Jesus. Yeah, Vatican too. Yeah, <laughs> has some <laughs> currency, has some positive connotations with people. Yeah. But, like, you start talking about Christianity. I mean, the news is out that, oh, you mean one of the driving forces of colonialism. Right. Of the slave trade, um, triangle trade. And again, Christians were the driving force in many ways for the abolition of slavery. Right. Etc. And that's fantastic. But we know now there's enough people... Thanks yep. to everything from the the internet to podcasts to what have you to Netflix documentaries, all this, it's just you know the the jig is up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so people know like, dude, mm-hmm. are you are you saying um, that you want a right wing theocracy, a la Mike Pence or something, mm-hmm. to take over the mm-hmm. country and? The world. It, when you say cr- the words like Christianity, mm-hmm. Christ, Church, faith, religion, mm-hmm. is that what you're really saying? Mm-hmm. Just be straight with me mm-hmm. and tell, admit that you want to take over yeah. my civil liberties or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I think for a lot of people, that's just what they mm-hmm. think of, and it's a lot of that's our fault. Do you think? Consciousness hasn't totally been ready to receive. Hmm. Well, all right. When you say consciousness, do you mean something that steadily builds upward in a predictable? A bit. bit. I mean, just this. um, You know, I mean, you start with Galileo saying, you know, the the uh, sun moves around us, right? Like just all of these. How it's all building, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, th- there's, <laughs> there's. I mean, 
Think of what we know today that we didn't know 20 years ago. Right. right? And, uh, and, I, and my senses are the Ken Wilbers of the world, spiral dynamics, stuff that you and I have talked mm-hmm. about before, that, um, I don't know, that's why I keep talking about the infancy of what Christianity probably has been and what it actually could, can be. Here's the thing, and I don't know the, the work on this well enough yeah. to, to comment definitively, but um, if you're saying there's a clearly visible upward trajectory in consciousness that's like that can be generally applied to mm-hmm. culture at large, that I, I find harder to swallow than something like um, waxing and waning, ebbing and flowing, mm-hmm. or something that is not necessarily a, a steady upward climb, mm-hmm. but that there are moments for sure mm-hmm. um, where... Even a biblical change in consciousness, meaning there was a time when you sacrificed children. Right. That was like normal. There have been, on every continent, that has been the deal at some point. Something about sacrifice, bloody sacrifice, and even human slash child sacrifice was appealing to human consciousness. And at some point someone goes, time out, and then like the slave conversation. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. No questions asked. And then time out. And, and again, those are really, really big rocks <laughs> that I'm putting into this container that we're, we're talking about. But um, that would also, I could also see the argument could be, well, you're saying that 2,000 years ago, consciousness wasn't ready for it, right? And here we are. So it's probably both and, not right. either or. And so, you know, in, in, in some ways... It's clear that two thousand years ago consciousness wasn't ready mm-hmm. because they crucified. Right. Right. And so um, but then again, you had those disciples. Mm-hmm. Right? That, I mean Mary and Mary and Martha and etc., they were Yeah. They were Let it ready. Be. Let it be. Yeah. They they <clears throat> uh, were at a they were at a place where they could uh, see and receive and believe that in a way that, for instance, like the broader Roman culture mm-hmm. definitely couldn't. Um, I don't know. I, I Here's... Culturally right now, again, I'm thinking like grand narrative meta, the consciousness of our age or culture yep. right now. Um, we are still not that thrilled about the concept of loving our enemies. Mm-hmm. So that would be one where I would say it exists, uh, like it is a sort of parallel to child sacrifice. Yeah. Or the right, slave right, right. question. Right, right, right. Um, where we now think that unconscionable to yeah. sacrifice a child or to enslave a human being. Um, there are people of faith for whom the idea of hating their enemy is unconscionable. They're so deep in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of my, 
we've talked a bit about uh, in passing about Francis of Assisi, but the Middle Eastern version of that, I would say, was Isaac the Syrian, um, who, um, I mean, that guy was just so madly in love with God and humanity and creation. He is sometimes called the Saint Francis hmm. of Syria. Hmm. Um, but it would not, he would be physically ill yeah. at the thought of tribalism or hating your mm-hmm. enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there were, there were huge controversies, theological controversies happening in the church uh, during his lifetime. There were like ecumenical councils happening mm. um, that he, even though he was kind of a notable figure, had nothing to do with because he wouldn't have it. He just could not conceive of like, there, there is no way I'm going to spend energy disliking. Yeah, turning you into an enemy. Spewing vitriol at a a fellow believer who has a different concept of Christology, but is trying to answer the same questions I'm trying to answer. Like, it's not easy to answer the question. Yeah. Like, oh, you're God and human, huh? That's not simple. Mm -hmm. And it totally makes sense that someone would struggle with that for decades and and have different um, tentative yep. thought experiments and scenarios yep. for explaining. And so um, as a culture right now, we, we, we like to dislike our enemies. Yep. And I mean Christians, let alone the broader culture. But, I mean, the, at the National Prayer Breakfast last week, um, which I have attended... And it, there was some action on Twitter about this, I, you know, not surprisingly, but um, Donald Trump, who I really try not to demonize because in some ways, like, you know, he's a New York real estate guy. In some ways, he reminds me of like half of my he's best car friends. <laughs> right. Half of my best friend's dads or whatever, you know. And so, um, but uh, he took time to gloat over his political enemies mm-hmm. and made jokes at the expense of his political enemies at the National Prayer Breakfast. Say what you will, the National Prayer Breakfast, which is a very Washington insider event. It's weird. Yeah. It's a, you know, the who's who of D.C. politics and then international leaders all get around tables in the Hilton or whatever in, in D.C. for three days um, and had these hoity-toity events and, and dinners and discussions. Um, but it really was kind of beautiful in the past. There really was a time where Democrats and Republicans... Unity over uniformity. Yes, would get together, invest in each other's lives, pray for each other... Listen, uh, I mean, I saw it. Hmm. I, I lived in D.C. for one year. I worked at a church that was in many ways a very conservative church. I was an intern at the church. I was like their intern youth pastor. Um, but I mean, that was, um, Ken Starr's family went to that church, hmm. took her calls to them. I mean, it, was a, it was a Republican, um, had a, certainly had a Republican base to, in that church. Um, 
but absolutely it was uh, open to political ideological enemies being at the table and loving your enemies mm -hmm. and that it sure doesn't look like we're headed in a good direction right now yeah. in terms of development of consciousness when it comes to that yeah 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 terribly dualistic yes yeah it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and I get it because. Mm -hmm. But if you don't start at Trinity, then you'll hang at dualism forever. It's too, yeah, it's too easy. It's too easy to know the game and win. And it's addictive. Yeah. Resentment is is it's a free drug. Yeah. It's internally dispensed. Yeah. And it works. I yeah. mean, you can get mileage out of not liking people and then feeding you know so that night you're going to watch a couple hours of the news or whatever that's going to reinforce that and give you more ammunition and yeah. feeds the ego builds you up yeah. um, the, and it's really hard to fight that mm -hmm. it's really hard mm -hmm. and I don't think the right the political right is is worse Right now, the left. I would have to say, I don't. I think it is ubiquitous right now that um, on both sides, people are really getting hits off of mm -hmm. othering. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that's a rabbit trail, but <laughs> con consciousness. We're talking about yes, consciousness. consciousness. So, um, who's this book written for? Who would you invite? I think it's written for, one, is for people who are brought up around Christianity and feel like they've been duped. Feel like, man, I was manipulated. Um, in some cases, lied to. Uh, and maybe just misled by really well-intentioned people. Um, Sorry, I'm waving at Ashton's <laughs> adorable daughters. We just had some friends walk in. <laughs> um, yeah, so those kinds of people that, like, that's a horrible feeling. Mm -hmm. It's lonely, it's scary. Mm -hmm. um, I've had friends, so Brooke and I, my wife, um, we lived in Nashville for 10 years, and so a bunch of our friends were just like artsy, fartsy, outside the box, musician, whatever type. And a lot of them are deep thinkers and feelers. And it is, I mean, they can really suffer hmm. and, and have really suffered yeah. um, by that feeling of loneliness. And I've seen it play out in mental health and just yeah. somebody, you know, coming to grips with, you know, they're coming into adulthood and the people who they loved and trusted and who were kind and loving. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. It's not always a story of... Uh, Oh, yeah. I was terribly abused by right. the youth pastor at my church, which sadly that does happen and is a terrible story. But I'm talking about people who um, are grieving mm -hmm. and reeling from the loss of that feeling of centeredness. Mm -hmm. Like I can trust my awesome grandmother who mm -hmm. was always so good to me and read the Bible to me when I was a kid and 
took me to vacation Bible school and taught me little lines and and things about scripture and, and um and she had turns out a very very narrow yeah. understanding um, in some ways of faith yeah. and it's not working for me yeah. yeah what do I do yeah is it my fault am mm-hmm. I a piece of crap <laughs> uh, you know that's that stuff's hard mm-hmm mm-hmm I think you did a great job in the book of not so much this is not what the path of our faith is, but more of like just really a back to square one, like what is love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control up to in the world? Like really not overcomplicating. Not so much of like, no, it's not that, and it's not this, because it's easy... It's easy, it's easy to be in that posture and that tone, that kind of yes. rage against the machine of religion, right? Uh-huh. But there's much more of a a centered good news okayness mm-hmm. with like let's go let's just go back and be, let's go back to the song that was sung, mm-hmm. the initial chord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and says, can we just start? Can we can we just hang our hat there for a while? Mm-hmm. And I think you and I have had this talk before. Like, I'm I'm a little over what is and isn't orthodox. Who is a heretic? Who's not? Mm-hmm. What's sacred? What's been desecrated? Like, mm-hmm. just I will affirm the fruits of the spirit. Yeah, that is my religion at the moment. Yeah. I will affirm the fruits of the Spirit. Against such things there is no law. I don't I I need nothing else for a long time. Yeah. I may in twenty years say I need a little different shot of whatever, but like it's just been really enlightening, that's not the right word, refreshing to center in those things. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think we have to pray and think and feel like uh, hopeful, Trinitarian, Christ-centered universalists, meaning... (laughs) Yes. Uh, it's just, there's probably a bunch of contradictions in there, namely because I started the sentence with we have to. Uh, <laughs> but I, at least for me, um, focusing on loving and praying for my enemies, which I am not saying I'm good at that. Yeah. You're allowed to not be good at that. And you're allowed to be afraid of it, too. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You could be scared. It's okay to be like, I'm going to need some time to forgive this person. Or I'm trying and I'm, I'm praying for them. I'm remembering them and trying to see them as God sees them. And I've got to be honest, it's, it's hard and it's not resonating. That's understandable and okay, especially if you've really been hurt. But, but you can that, also learn new piano riffs at 80. 
You can. Yeah. And you, you a, an old dog can learn new tricks. And you can, and doing that, praying to see kind of Paul's vision for um, the, the restoration of all things yeah. um, is, I think, essential. And of course we can, out of that place, speak to falsehood. Because falsehood hurts people. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so I, I want to challenge things that are deceptive, false, harmful, slanderous, etc. because they're not good, true, and beautiful. Right. And they have damaging consequences. Um, and, and I do think it, you know, we have a responsibility to be truth thinkers and speakers in part because of our own spiritual health. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's easy for me to withdraw and hide mm-hmm. rather than speak truth sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like if I don't, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess that's, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. If I don't want to engage in a difficult dialogue or disagreement or argument, um, I have found a way to kind of withdraw that is unhealthy, I think, mm-hmm. for me, because mm-hmm. I'm not that I'm not really mm-hmm. learning to see or love mm-hmm. by doing that. Um, but who, who doesn't want to avoid such crucifixion? <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, and yet it's the way. Right, it is. Yeah. It is, and so if we're heresy hunters, mm-hmm. like if we, I think that's one of the many struggles mm-hmm. right now for popular evangelicalism. Yeah. It's like, hey, you're 17, and you've been going to this youth group your whole life, and we're going to equip you to uh, like be an apologist for the faith, and and encourage you to have these kind of arguments and debates and go to Baylor and stick your flag in the sand and say, I'm with the five-point Calvinist yeah. or UF people or whatever, or the care of that. It's like, man, why are we setting people up for that to be their default position mm-hmm. rather than... Jazz. Yes. <laughs> Against which there is no law. Like, it's... Try telling Jimi Hendrix to um, to practice more. What yeah. what a foolish thing that would be to tell someone who's already madly in love. Yeah. Right. Of course, you'd say just ask the axis. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah. So it's that kind of thing, and, and I I do think that's what. You want to talk about a passage that makes no sense to a person who's either new to faith or in a particularly tribalistic phase, that whole idea of freedom from the law. For freedom you've been set free? Yeah. That, like, that love sort of makes... um, moral dictates uh, silly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it, it, it sort mm-hmm. of makes them um, obsolete mm-hmm. yeah yeah 
But liberation, freedom, lightening the load, there's the good news. Yes. And we're forgetful. We forget the good news. That's okay. Totally. But it's that remembering for freedom you've been set free. Yeah. Brooke and I are in this phase, um, which has been really cool. I can't say that we've been in this phase our whole lives or our whole marriage, but I feel like I could say we're in a phase where we go to church and it's pretty... It's pretty celebratory. Hmm. Like one of us is usually in tears, in joyful tears at some point. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of good news. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It, I totally sympathize. I empathize with people who are post-church or burnt out or something like that. But man, I, I've had a stretch here. I don't know why what I can attribute to that too, uh, but where I just mm-hmm. think it's delightful. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just looking around, like we, when we were in Nashville, we went to this little church where um, there were a lot of uh, people in their 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a pretty small church. My sense is that there were a lot of like former charismatics. Like mm. there was a, charismatic movement in like the 70s and 80s yep. in the uh, Episcopal Church even the Catholic Church in the in different parts of the US and it was some of that camp and some mm-hmm. of that 60s Jesus movement mm-hmm. camp and so sometimes I would just like sit there and look around at these old people who were joyful and quirky and this one lady would have like a purple streak in her white hair that she would just <laughs> dye it there you know and, um, and they had these mischievous smiles and it was just sort of church was was yeah light yeah light and bright yes yeah and it still feels like that right now for us so. yeah it happens to me when I lose the need to win yeah Oof. you know the 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 longing for connection becomes greater than the longing to be correct. Yes. The freedom to be misunderstood. What is better than that? Right. Right. It's the bad... I mean, I'm not saying I have a lot of that. 100%. No, I'll forget tomorrow. Yeah. But like, when I'm there, when I'm in it, when I'm in the flow of the jazz, Yeah. I don't have a lot of weapons in my hands. Yeah. The heart space is is open to receive and there's just a different different something there sounds like what you've been in a little bit and then again i say that and and factor in the fact that i have a five and a two-year-old and i'm always tired and (laughs) my my but if you're going by the textbook, my prayer life, whatever you want to call it, quiet time, yeah, is garbage. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't have any, yeah, every once in a while, I'm like, this will be the morning, yeah, and then yeah. in the next room, <laughs> and then that, it's just this sinking feeling <laughs> when I hear my two year old erupt into tears at 6 15 in the morning, anyway. And then you learn that sometimes those next three hours are the prayer. Yeah, it has to be. 
That's it. It that's has it. to be. That's you, what it is. We have to incorporate into our daily uh, rhythms. Yeah. Um, yeah. That kind of spiritual sense. So before we go, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh my gosh. Calm down. Um, listen more. God is better at this stuff than you think he is. Um, I mean, I really, when I was young, I just didn't think God yeah. was going to be able to pull it off. Huh. Like that I needed to, I'm going to have to save the world, orchestrate the world, save Christianity, be the ultimate apologist. Like I just, mm-hmm. ego, control, fear, all that stuff. Like mm-hmm. I basically applied some orthodox doctrine mm-hmm. to that or, or not even applied appropriated Mm -hmm. some like orthodox evangelical theology to that mess yeah and then did that for about 10 years it was insane so but you can breathe a lot easier when the 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 moment you go oh this thing isn't up to me right I mean that's a huge I think that would help all of our religious movements if we just didn't take our PR so seriously that it was up to us. Yes. You know. Can you align with the jazz that is love and and maybe together something can happen. Yeah. And if it doesn't, okay. Try tomorrow. Right. Try the next day. Yeah. And just trust that rhythm. Mm -hmm. And it ain't on you. Yeah. And there's enough work... Like, Jesus was so insightful when he said, you know, tomorrow's got enough trouble. Right. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Today, or I'm butchering the passage, but today has enough trouble. To worry about for itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, that really is our vocation. And then consider the lilies. Have you checked out the flowers in a while? Yes. (laughs) It's all in the now. Yes. It's all in the now, uh-huh. which is what you get at. It's like, it can't just be evacuation theology, as McLaren says. No. It ha- what, what, does it, what does it mean for right here, right now? Yeah. And we can always, we can always refocus. Yeah. Yeah. It's a dance. It's a waltz. Some days you have it, some days you don't. Uh-huh. So what day? Leap year. What day does this book come out? February 29th. I wanted, yeah, existentially, I thought it would be funny to pick a day that almost doesn't exist to, to release the book. So February 29th it is. Uh, and uh, there's, let's see, we've got, I'm looking through here, got the Pope quoted quite a bit, quite a bit of roar, falling upward, beautiful. Um, and, uh, I was going to count. I probably shouldn't do that. There's a thousand. Nine, no, yeah. No, yeah. A thousand four, one thousand four <laughs> references in here. Um, none of which you have to look at. There's not even that many pages for every page. There's almost three and a half. Yes. References. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, Amazon everywhere. Good books are sold. 
Yes. You gonna go on like a tour? You gonna go like run around and talk about this thing? I think so. Yeah. Uh, we're trying to figure out how to do that uh, right now. So uh, I'm planning on doing something in Nashville, and hopefully something um, in Atlanta. We're looking at doing something in April. So beautiful. Yeah. So we chased a lot of rabbits today. Will you come on again and maybe yeah. maybe I'll help us focus a bit. That would be. We great. can have like little. That's my fault. No, it's not. That's jazz. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. it better be. Because <laughs> that's all I got. Beautiful. Well, thank you for putting this beautiful work in the world. And for our listeners, make sure you get online, get you a copy. You will find that Justin is one of us and doing beautiful things. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, And if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car, Uh, You allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more, uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid. Listen to the bluebirds sing and be love.